Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world we inhabit, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do, a time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know and who we might become. In today's episode, we're going to once again examine how we break through self-imposed limitations, limitations that may hold us back, keep us stuck, when there is so much more that we want to experience in our lives. We will examine the questions, who we are, where we want to be, and how we can go about accomplishing that objective, and once more, we'll use the real-life story of a famous and successful person to help us map our path. So the question, how did I get where I am and how do I get where I want to be, becomes our central inquiry in this episode of Breaking Limitations. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is a Provocative Enlightenment Special Investigation. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravindra, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com, emphasis on forward slash chat. If I don't get that forward slash chat in there... I get a dirty look. Okay, Ravinder, it's time for us to hear your lovely voice and that oh-so-inviting description of your chat room. I never give you dirty looks. I just love you, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) Except when you mess up, and then maybe. (laughs) Of course, I would love everyone to come join me in the chat room. That is, of course, provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. The conversation is always very stimulating and we learn a lot in there, so it, it's a great place to be, and it's a great group of people. I've got some great friends that have come out of that one, so do come join me. Indeed, we've actually taken, uh, we, we have uh, had some good guests come out of your chat room, yes, and very have. often our guests uh, visit the chat room. So, all right, every week we feature a spotlight segment, and this week's spotlight is all about what I refer to as gotchas. The journey of life is really about living into our authentic selves. The first big gotcha is to hide that fact from us, to enculturate us in ways that foster the interests of society as a whole or of an elite few, while organizing the rest of us to conform and thereby consume. And that's exactly what most of us do. Consume more information and more goodies and more things, and in doing so, separate ourselves from our real selves. I once enjoyed a wonderful lecture by Professor Carl LaPresche. In the lecture, he spoke of the four human drives. He nuanced them some when he referred to them as the four Fs, fight, flight, feeding, and effing. Now, the students he was addressing were all members of law enforcement, so the effing in place of fornicating received a big laugh. I've never forgotten the four Fs in this context because at that time, I was working on a paper having to do with why there was so much interest in getting more. More money, more power, more time, more, more, more. I consider the more to be a modern human adaptation, or fifth force, if you will, forming yet another human drive. Perhaps we have, as a species, always had a more drive, but if so... I'm quite confident that never in humanity's history has it exerted such a powerful influence as that we witness today. 
I remember a conversation with a friend years ago about our economy and cash flow. We happened to be at a home shore where we had a team of salespeople at a booth offering security devices. There were many displays within the tent, and when you looked around, you could see an air pump in the corner, literally keeping the entire tent up. My friend directed my attention to the pump and informed me that cash flow was like that pump. Lose the cash and the tent will come down. Consumption has become the air in the tent for our economy. Most of this consumption must now come from the private sector, and that means you. Advertisers are charged with motivating you to buy. Marketing experts develop more and more products and services, and banks create credit power so you can just charge it. Individual debt increases, national debt increases, more money is printed, and we are told that more consumption is needed to pay back the interest on the debt, to say nothing of the debt itself. It is this circularity to which more and more individuals give their life that diminishes who we are as human beings. Immanuel Kant, the great Prussian philosopher, who has been credited with making philosophy professional, considered the human condition in a way similar to what Copernicus's thinking was about the solar system. Copernicus observed the solar system and concluded that Ptolemy's idea of an Earth-centric solar system made no sense. But with the sun at the center, the observations did make sense. Kant did something with human condition, with human beings, that was very similar. He placed consciousness, the mind of man, mankind itself, in the center of his inquiry. And ever since, the individual rights of mankind have been central rather than peripheral. No longer was mankind seen as tangential to meaning, rather mankind was seen as central to the meaning of everything. One of Kant's central messages and challenges that is just as relevant today as ever is dare to know. Dare to know. Modernity has placed an emphasis on our individual rights and freedoms, and this can arguably be traced to the works of Kant. As consumption animals, eager to ring yet another bell and gain another token or prize, anxious that we may miss out on the next big deal or the last one, so anxious that we will indebt ourselves for years to have something we quickly forget we ever needed. As consumption animals gathering things that when we look around we see no reason to keep, we lose our freedom because we surrender our true identity. I urge you to think back to who you were before you were told who you should be. What are your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, that's a deep one. That's a deep one, who I am before I was told who I should be. Um, You know, I think I have come through that one, I think. You know, the fact is we're always constantly learning about ourselves um, but you've been great for, you know, keeping me on track. It is so easy to get pulled along by the crowds and to follow everyone else. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's a deep one. I think your, your show, your teachings, you know, that they help me, you know, and that is not me being biased. So don't give me that look either. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, it is. You know, you constantly have to question. I, I think that's what it, what it comes down to. You constantly have to ask yourself, why do I think that way? Um, is that really me or is it a habit? Is it the enculturation? Is it because it's, it's expected of me? Is it because it's considered nice? You know, because that's not necessarily my true feelings on on anything. But no, I think I'm doing pretty well there. I'm actually kind of happy with with how I feel about that particular question. All right, good. Okay, <laughs> every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Deborah King, and we discussed her work and book, Entangled in Darkness, Seeking the Light. Brian wrote, it was interesting to hear Deborah be interviewed rather than talking on her own show. I can imagine for some fans that knowing there are some preset agreed-upon questions for some guests can be a disappointment. That is why I always liked Eldon pulling the when is the last time you had an original thought question pre-Hay House Radio. One could hear the guest mental gears grinding to a halt in silence. Well, thanks, Brian. I like that question, as you know. But for the record, it is a standard practice in radio to obtain a set of questions from the guests. They typically make up 20 or so, and sometimes they even provide their written responses to each of those questions. I get their questions, but I rarely use them unless there's some question that I look at that just completely intrigues me, and there's no answer there. you know. So I look at the question and say, what on earth has that got to do with anything? And we had a couple of those from Deborah King. So uh, I prefer to have a candid conversation. You know that, in my view, makes for good radio. If you listen closely, however, you can often detect the fact that the guests who expect you to follow some preset pathway um, are a little confounded because they will pause as though you just threw them a curveball when you begin your questioning. All right. Evelyn commented, love the show. Thanks so much for having her as a guest. Kind of interesting that Evelyn classified attorneys and surgeons together. Well, now... You know, the togetherness I was referring to, Evelyn, uh, has to do with the amount of aggression necessary to be good in either profession. Think about it this way. The surgeon must be able to cut into a human being without hesitation, and the attorney must be willing to go for the throat. So it stands to reason that their level of aggression would be higher than, say, the accountant or librarian. Mark wrote, I thought Deborah King was a great guest. One thing she said was that she threw out the dogma of Catholicism while retaining a belief in the saints and angels. I'm not a Catholic, but remember as a kid visiting my neighbor's church. I can still remember feeling the presence of the saints and angels so I can relate to what Deborah was saying. Also, because of her background as an attorney, I think Eldon met his match. She was quick on her feet to answer his questions and even ask him a question or two in return. Thanks for the great show. I'm a little puzzled on this one, Ravindra. I have to admit, did I miss something? I don't know. I'd have to say that I'm a little bit puzzled too. You know, the interview was was interesting. It was great to see, you know, behind the scenes with Deborah King. But especially when I was, you know, preparing the files for all the other syndications, you know, all the places that it goes out to, no, there were definite pauses before every single question. It could be classified as a typical attorney is going to think everything through very, very carefully, but quick on her feet, no, there were... 
extended pauses, and it was visible in the files I was looking there at. There were two so. questions that she gave us, her staff gave us, that I asked her, and she had no recollection of those questions. Or, I always ask for questions from, from the guests just because it gives us a guideline. All right, well, whatever. Come on. All right, moving on. Colette wrote, love the feelings experienced during your hypnosis sessions. Stephen wrote, have several of your high-quality Intertalk CDs. They are great. Diane wrote, enjoying my first CD, which is Prosperity. I can tell the difference now after a couple of weeks. I play the CD quietly every morning as I have coffee. Ingrid wrote, loved your book, Mind Programming. Carla wrote, Eldon, I just wanted to thank you for your online event, Choices and Illusions. I was unable to complete the live online event, but with the downloadable courses... I just finished. As many have stated before me, your Ecotech technology is effective and efficient in bringing about desired change. I've only listened to the MP3 ending self-destructive patterns included with the course five times, not the 17 hours that you have said it generally takes to bring about change, and the highway of life is littered with the debris of the self-limiting behaviors, relationships that I am zealously casting aside. This course should come with a disclaimer. Warning, use of this program could result in the in excess free time as you rid yourself of imbalanced relationships that no longer serve your higher good. Thanks again for sharing your wisdom with all of us. Stay fuzzy. Now, I like that. Stay fuzzy. Now, you know, for all of you out there, this online course is still available through Hay House. Thoughts on that one, Princess? I like you when you're fuzzy. You like me when I'm fuzzy, okay. Warm and fuzzy. All right, warm and fuzzy. Okay, I like those warm, fuzzy feelings, and that's what she's referring to. Of course. All right, and Nancy wrote, Thank you for all of the wonderful information and presentations with interesting guests, all very thought-provoking and provocative. Well, you're more than welcome, Nancy, and thank you all of you out there for your letters and support. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, I sincerely appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's special episode of Breaking Limitations, featuring our guest, Dr. Karen Wyatt. Karen Wyatt is a family practice and hospice physician who has been called America's Spiritual MD. She is the founder of Creative Healing LLC, which has a mission to restore spirituality to the practice of Western medicine. In addition, she has lectured and written extensively about loss and end-of-life issues and is the author of a book I highly recommend, what Really Matters, Seven Lessons for Living from the Stories of the Dying. Dr. Wyatt is passionate about helping people find meaning and purpose even during the most difficult times of life. She has studied childhood development, psychology, and neuroscience and utilizes this knowledge to help her patients and clients identify where their energy is stuck in the past. She shows them how to free themselves from the hidden wounds of childhood and move beyond old negative beliefs. Dr. Wyatt also hosts the What Really Matters radio show, and she has won numerous awards for her volunteer service, including the Spirit of the American Woman Award and being named one of Utah's 100 Notable Women. Karen has been with us before and is one of my favorite guests, 
So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Karen Wyatt. Thank you so much, Eldon. It's a pleasure to be on your show with you again. It's it's our pleasure indeed, sincerely. You, you know, it looks like you've been really busy since we last chatted. I didn't know you were from Utah. Do you still live there? No, I don't live there now. I, I lived in Utah for a number of years. I did my residency training there, and then my husband and I stayed and practiced medicine there for about 12 years, and then we moved on to Colorado. So I'm in Colorado now. Says, I saw that Utah Woman's Award, and I thought, goodness, I, you know, because I was raised in Utah as well. So, oh. I, it, yeah, I shouldn't say as well. You weren't raised there. You did your residency. Okay. Our goal here, Dr. Wyatt, is to develop a clear picture as to how the truly helpful and successful people in life, like yourself, have gained the success they have today. In doing this, we will attempt to trace a path that leads from where you were to where you are today. So to begin, please tell us about your early years. What was school like for you? Were you popular, a member of a group, a loner? How do you see yourself when you look back on it? Uh, I was primarily, I, I think of myself as a loner, though I guess other kids seemed to like me, but I liked being alone. So it wasn't that I got rejected by anyone. I, I just kind of shunned other kids, and I always seemed to have, um, I always seemed to have lots of things to think about. I was constantly thinking and pondering things. <laughs> so I needed this time and space to be by myself. Um, for all these thoughts to go on. And so I, I realize now that's probably somewhat unusual as a child, but I definitely seem to have ideas that were a little beyond my years when I was younger. And then when I was an adolescent, I had pretty severe acne. And so I, I developed really low self-esteem, and I was um, I didn't date at all, and I was very uncomfortable with myself and my physical body and and in those years really felt like a misfit in many ways. But again, I was still thinking a lot, still had lots of ideas that I was pondering all the time. Share that with us. I mean, lots of ideas. What kind of ideas were you having ahead well, of your time? I, I, Flesh that I out. I mean, it, may, it probably sounds strange, but that I would think about it. I mean, I remember when I first learned about infinity in math class, the idea of infinity that I was completely fascinated by this idea of infinity, and so I would sit and think about it. I would think about the universe and the stars and how vast it was and what infinity meant and how, you know, it, I would just kind of let my mind expand into those thoughts. And then when I was 16 is really when I first got the notion in my head that the purpose of my life was to learn about love. And... Um, that idea, that idea just came to me, and so I kind of, it was like a revelation to me that what I needed to do was to understand love, and that that was my, the purpose for my life, and so I, I see those as just kind of probably unusual things. I started reading books about love, and what love is, and how, how love works in the world in order to understand it better, and I started that when I was 16. Now, were you reading books about unconditional love, uh, you know, uh, spiritually yeah. oriented books, or were you reading, reading about romantic love, or both? No, primarily spiritually oriented love, because I, I, I had a sense already that, that that drive to know about love came somehow from my spiritual being, that that was my spiritual purpose. So I was reading about 
unconditional love. And I read some books by Father John Powell, who was a Catholic priest. Now I can't remember I can't remember the names of some of those books, but I was really fascinated with his books and just pondering the idea of what love is and how what kind of force love is and how how love was important in our lives but in the world as well. So and you were sixteen, so this would have been a point in time when Acne was a problem to you, and your esteem was maybe not the highest. Uh, have I got that pretty close to right? Yes, yes, exactly. So the kind of love you're reading about is not emotional love; it's a, it's spiritual love. And, and now, you know, was there any any point where you felt as though you weren't deserving of that love? Um, you know, I'm not. I. Probably. I would say I probably did, because at that point in my life, I think I was studying love as if it was something outside of myself that I needed to learn about. And I was trying to figure out how to incorporate it. And so I think that's a great question, because I think that was what was happening. I didn't really understand that I deserved that love, and that's why I didn't know how to how to experience it for myself. So I was left with my intellect in some ways, uh, trying to study it and, and learn about it. But at that point, I already knew I wanted to be a doctor. And so I was trying to combine this idea of love with practicing medicine and seeing how learning about love would help me be a better doctor and help me help other people. So it mostly my ideas about love were focused outward, how love, how I could show love to others rather than how I could experience love for myself. When did you know you wanted to be a doctor, and what motivated you to want to be one, Dr. Wyatt? You know, I, I I know that when I was very little, I always wanted to be a nurse because even, when, you know, I have little drawings from grade school when the teachers would have us draw pictures of what we want to be when we grow up, and I always drew pictures of me being a nurse. And when I was 12, my fourth grade teacher that I had stayed in contact with took me aside and she said, I know that you want to be a nurse, but have you ever considered being a doctor? And I said, well, I'm a girl. And she said, so I don't, can girls be doctors? And she said, of course they can, and you could be a doctor. And so she planted that idea in my mind, and then instantly I knew that's, that's right. That's what it is. I'll, just, I'll be a doctor. So starting at age 12, I was totally focused on that goal of going to medical school. In fact, I mean, I was 12, and I looked up in our encyclopedia how you become a doctor, what's medical school like, how many years does it last. I studied all of that when I was 12 to help me understand how I was going to make this happen in my life. All due to a fourth grade teacher taking you aside. That's really pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool indeed. Uh, It's especially hard to be a hospice doctor. What attracted you to that kind of care, Dr. Wyatt? Well, that didn't happen until I, I I went into family practice as my for my residency training. So I was do it just doing primary care for patients, taking care of the whole family and the whole person. And then about three years into my practice, my father died. He he committed suicide actually, and uh, I was really devastated by his death. I had a terrible time 
coping with just the grief and the guilt that I felt about his death and, and even, you know, questioning everything, all these things I had believed for my whole life about love and how I would help people with love when my father was one of the people I loved more than anyone in the world and he and I couldn't help him or save him. So that's how that's how big his death was in my life. It was so devastating and ultimately I wasn't I just wasn't recovering from it, and I got the idea that maybe I should try working in hospice so that I could just immerse myself in death and gonna, dying and grief. And I'm going to ask you to hold it right there, if you will, okay. Dr. Wyatt. We have a hard break. Uh, when we come back, we'll pick it up there. We're speaking with Dr. Karen Wyatt about her life, teachings, and books. You can learn more about Dr. Wyatt by visiting her website, KarenWyattMD.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? Inner talk. Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, Learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Dr. Karen Wyatt about her life, teachings, and books. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives. Their life songs, if you will. This often provides some interesting insight into our guest. Now, we just played some of All You Need Is Love by the Beatles. Why is this one important to you, Dr. Wyatt, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, as I already mentioned, from a fairly young age, I had this impetus 
to learn about love and the importance of love. And and as I was saying in those early days, I was reading about love and studying love kind of intellectually and um, trying to figure out how to share love and give love to others. Um, Though it took me a number of years to recognize that I had to experience love. I had to experience being loved and receiving love also in order to truly give love. But that song um, has come through for me over and over again in my life of the importance of love. And even when I was working in hospice with patients at the end of life, that, that turned out to be one of the important themes for every patient I talked with to love came came down to being one of one of the most important uh, considerations for them at, at the very end of life. You know, I, I want to come back to where we left off before the break and pick up on the difficulty of of being a hospice physician. But uh, I guess there's this part of me I can't leave something that was uh, that we discussed in the first half, uh, and that's you know. I've got to ask you about someone that you mentioned that you feel was very important to you, uh, the books that you read, and and I've got to ask you whether or not you know that he was accused, this is Father John Powell, of being uh, a Jesuit pedophile. Indeed, uh, for all intent and purposes, uh, I guess, you know, uh, did that color the effect of what you had read and how you'd taken to heart at all when you learned of who this person was, or did you learn of who this person was? Uh, actually, I didn't. I never knew that until just now. I had never heard that about him, so that's very interesting. Okay, so obviously it didn't color. Let me ask you this <laughs> then: Do you, as you reflect on that, would it color? Uh, the works that you read, would it somehow, knowing who he was, influence your interpretation of what he wrote? That's what I'm trying to say. I would say it probably would have if I had, had I known it at the time, I probably would have read what he wrote in a different light at that time, but I can say, and, and that's just looking at it from now, from where I am now in life, <laughs> and, uh, but at the time when I was a teenager, his words were really, really, really spoke to me and were powerful to me. And so I can understand that, you know, he still might have been capable of writing something very powerful and true in spite of the fact that he was living a lie in his uh, in his personal life at the same time. But that being said, when I think about it now, it probably would have, might have colored how I how he viewed what he wrote. I would have questioned that somewhat and questioned his integrity. Well, you were a young girl, and he was, of course, accused of, uh, I believe it was seven young girls. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I guess there's this part of me, I am not familiar with these writings, and that's why I'm asking you, uh, this part of me that would wonder if it was, if he had a way of relating to a young girl that... Uh, gave rise to building the rapport and, and whatnot that would have been, you know, that would have taken place uh, necessarily because, I mean, he didn't rape these girls, uh, maybe statutorily, but you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. All right, let's leave that one. 
Okay. Uh, let's go back to the hospice. You, you're the hospice doctor, and you you were explaining that your father had committed suicide, and you that you took that very very hard. That would tend, I think, for most people to steer them away from wanting to deal with death. And that's exactly why what I recognized in myself is that is that I needed to deal with death, and so um, that's it's kind of. That's become my philosophy ever since then, is that sometimes you have to go through the hard things. You can't run away from it just because it's painful. So I I think I chose hospice as the place where I'd be just confronted with it and wouldn't be able to run away, and I would have to deal with it with every single patient that I took care of. And um, indeed, it was very helpful to me, very effective for me. So like... uh like an animal that you don't run away from it, you run into it. Is that what I'm to take away from this? Uh, yes, that's exactly the philosophy that I used when I when I went into hospice. Was you know I'm struggling to figure this out and deal with it. So I'm I'm it's sort of a sink or swim philosophy. I guess I'm going right into it, and either it will it might kill me, <laughs> or I might figure this out, and I might be able to get through it and come out on the other side. You know, I, I'm going to jump ahead because I, you and I have talked, and I, you shared a story with me that I have shared with many people. Uh, that I think is just a, a completely remarkable story about your mother and and her last days. And the reason I'm jumping ahead to go to there now is what I hear from you took a lot of courage. I mean, and and I'm wondering how important was your mother to to creating this courage, to, to building within you the Karen Wyatt that you are today, the person that, that was dedicated to helping other people and so forth. Uh, because the story that I'm thinking of was your mother is terminal and uh, she's not going to give up on helping other people even though she is unable to. Do you want to share that story and then answer for me the question? How okay. important was she? to you being who you are today. Okay. Um, well, yes, the story that I told you was that uh, my mom, for, for the last five years of her life, was really confined to a recliner in her home. She had uh, people come in who helped her at home, but she wasn't able to, re- to leave the house anymore. And she had always been a woman who was very active, doing lots of volunteer work and helping people, and she was frustrated initially that she wasn't able to do any of that work anymore. And then she decided that she told me one day, I figured out what I can do. I can pray for people. So she saw her role for those last years of her life as just sitting in her recliner and praying for people. And um, she'd hear about someone who had a problem or a difficulty and would pray for them. And then when I was... um, taking care of her in the very last week of her life. I stayed, I was with her at her house and caring for her. She told me, you know, I didn't understand. She said, five years ago I told God I was ready, that he could take me any time, and I didn't understand why he wasn't taking me when I, I, I said to him, I'm ready now, and he didn't do it. And, and I said, because, Mom, he needed you here. He needed you to, to pray. And then um, suddenly she started thinking and she realized that um, one of the reasons she decided in her mind that one of the reasons she she had she developed uh, 
biliary cancer in the last month of her life and that one of the reasons that needed to happen was so she could go on hospice because she had a hospice nurse who had had a lot of difficulties in her life. So mom had been talking to her and working with her, and she was just so excited. This was like the day before she died. She said, I know why all this happened, so that I could help my nurse, so that I could help Krista, and that's why I needed to get cancer, so that she could become my nurse and I could help take care of her. And so it was very precious to me that even in her last moments, she was so weak she couldn't lift her head off the pillow um, but still her all of her heart and her mind and all of her thoughts were about how can I be of help to someone else and indeed her nurse Krista came as mom was dying and was there and just sobbed and cried and she said to me she changed my life she, she working with her changed my life Incredible story. You know, and I have to tell you, you know, I, I get tears in my eyes when I hear you tell that story. I just I can't imagine. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful person and, and, and so spiritual. Now, how important was that to you then in becoming who you are? Well, you know, I don't know if I recognized it when I was a child because it was just part of my day to day life, but. My mom really taught me the importance of being of service to others because she was always constantly, she was taking clothes to people, making food for people. We would go visit elderly shut-ins in our neighborhood, and, and, I, and I always went with her. I was always part of all of these things that she did, and I just thought it was normal. I thought everyone did those kinds of things. And so I really incorporated that idea in in my life that we there should we should always be figuring out how we can help someone else who is in need around us and what can we do to be of service to them. And it was a lot of years before I recognized that not everyone has that mindset and that, that I was really fortunate to be raised that way because it just became part of, of my daily life and how I saw the world. Initially, your desire to become a nurse was that fed by your mother's activity at helping everybody? It could it could have been because I, I don't remember her ever I don't remember her ever planting the idea in my head and I you know no one in my family was involved in medicine at all and so I just I always wonder did I see a television program or something that gave me that idea maybe it was Marcus Welby or something <laughs> that gave me that that thought. But I, but definitely for me, being a nurse was about helping people and being of service to people. That that all fit together. Okay, now the tough one, Dr. Wyatt. Okay. Your mother is obviously a very caring human being. And, uh, you know, Mother Teresa doesn't sound like she could have done much your mother didn't do. Uh I'm going to then juxtapose that to your father, who must have been very disturbed, uh, disappointed in himself, depressed, and so so forth. Um, how did that contrast influence you? Tell us more about your father leading up to his suicide. Well, my father was also a very kind and benevolent person, but he had very, very wounded self-esteem. From uh, his upbringing as a child, he was uh, in a he was raised in a very stern, um, physically abusive family. I mean, there was 
love in the family, but he he was just very subdued as a person and had never really had a, a sense of self-esteem throughout his entire life. And in addition, I I still believe in my aunt validated this. My dad had some wounds from World War II. He was a soldier in World War II and was involved in the Battle of the Bulge and had a number of harrowing stories and incidents when, you know, all of his friends and um, platoon mates were killed in certain battles. And I I never knew all the details of it, but I knew that he was carrying some very, very difficult scars and wounds from that war that he wouldn't talk about and wouldn't deal deal with with other people. And so so dad had these issues for him, the low self-esteem to begin with and that woundedness that he carried from the war and um, was always just an extremely hard worker. He ran a gas station and he worked about 14 hours a day my whole childhood. Um, very hard worker, a great provider, and um, but just really never developed a life of his own for himself. You know, uh, like never really embraced life as something good for him that fed him or meant something to him. And um, I think that the, the roots of his suicide, I think, came from from those places. But it was actually only after my dad's death um, that we we discovered just how benevolent my dad was because a number of people started coming into the the gas station where he worked and telling my brother stories about my dad and how my dad had helped them. He repaired their car for free. One family was on the road and their car broke down and they had nothing and he repaired their car for free. When they got back, got to the destination, they found he filled the trunk with groceries for them and, uh, you know, and they they had no idea he had done this thing for them. So we just heard story after story of people my dad had secretly been helping. So he was also this very benevolent, kind person, but he kept it all to himself. Never told anyone he was he was doing those things. You know, they say that we choose our parents. You chose well. You chose very well for what you do and who you are. You uh, you're pursuing. Um, a task of helping people understand themselves and heal those inner wounds. And we're going to get to that um, in our next hour. We're going to get into detail into what you do. But it seems to me that maybe all of this predisposed you, actually even, you know, guided you, if you will. If you think of it as a river, you're in the current, and it's taking you to where you have, you know, a background that, further facilitates you in helping others to overcome their childhood limitations, uh, heal the wounded child within, and so forth, if you will. Do you think that these incidences that you just related to us guided you there, or is there some other motivating reason that that's uh, a major part of what you do today? I'm I'm sure of it because I I can really see my whole life that way as everything kind of all fitting together and flowing together to lead me where I am and that I can see how these impulses and inspirations for things have come from deep within me from these experiences of life. Okay. I I think it's pretty 
obvious, but I, I want to know where the roots of it come from and uh, and how important it has been to you. And that's the subject of spirituality. I mean, were you raised Catholic? Were you? I mean, what what, what is your religious background and uh, how do you identify today? And what do you see the role of spirituality in our lives to be? I was raised Lutheran. My mom was Lutheran and her parents and um, family. Um, and so, and I loved, I loved growing up in the church. We went, we went to church every Sunday and I went to Sunday school, so we were involved in the church. Um, but not overly fun, fundamentalistic, I guess I would say, in childhood, but I loved church. I loved, I loved the building. I loved the, beams in the ceiling, I love the music and the liturgy and the stained glass windows, like I just took it all in and I, I really loved it when I was a child. And I even went to a Lutheran college, um, but it was there in college that I, I became somewhat disillusioned with the idea of organized religion and felt that I really wanted to, I just wanted to know more my, for myself. I didn't want to follow the dogma of one religion, I wanted to understand a much bigger picture of spirituality. So that's when I started investigating for myself and reading lots of other, reading about other religions, though I was never drawn to any other religion. I just I just simply took in all the spiritual principles I could find anywhere and tried to apply them to my own life. So where you are today, uh is it spirituality per se, meaning, you know, uh, the identification, the clarification you just gave us, or is it religion, like organized religion, that has its most important role in your life? Um, I would definitely spirituality, because I'm, I'm no longer a member of any organized religion. I don't belong to any particular church. So I kind of pursue my own spiritual path, I guess, and... Uh, uh, try to pursue spirit, like spiritual practices like prayer, but also meditation and um, a lot of contemplation and writing and journaling and just trying to listen to higher guidance and be um, in contact with God and, and experience God in my own life. You know, one of my favorite books, um, indeed, in, in Herman Hesse's Pulitzer-winning novel, Siddhartha, we yeah. discover that spirituality is the way we live every day. You tell us stories about your mother. You tell us stories about your father. And, and I don't hear religion per se. I hear spirituality, how they live every day. Finding our own rivers, so to speak, where we can live our lives fully aware of our daily duties and still totally participate, you know, in true enlightenment, Bringing service to to what we do to me seems to be kind of a penultimate goal. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yes. So I feel you, like that that's that absolutely should be should be a goal for everyone. And in that sense, it becomes all inclusive. Yes. No. That was yes. A question. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, definitely. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, what I, obviously what I mean by that is it it doesn't matter where you're coming from. You, you can be a Buddhist, uh, you could be a Taoist. Uh, you, it, it it really doesn't matter if you live your life that way. That to me 
is the expression of honest spirituality. It isn't about going to the building and paying tithe or going to the building and cussing out your neighbor later after church. It's about what you do every day of your life. When you think of yourself, Dr. Wyatt, how do you describe yourself and your life's goals and ambitions at this point? Well, um, I, I guess I'm someone that I feel that I have, there's some sort of message burning within me <laughs> that has, that I have to continually put out in the form of writing and speaking the, these messages that are, that fill me up inside that I feel they're, they're spiritual messages for people. And so now I'm on this path of trying to figure out how I get those messages to the people who need them and hear them. And, um, Everything has changed since I, I quit practicing medicine, so I no longer have the exam room and this one-on-one time with patients as a place where I can connect with them. And so now as more of a writer and a speaker, I'm, I'm trying to figure out this different world here and how I put the message out there to people. Well, I think you're doing a marvelous job for, for whatever that's worth for me. And and right now you're putting the message out. You do do counseling, one-on-one counseling over the phone, though, do you not? Yes, I do. I do a limited amount of that, and I I really enjoy it because I that's it's been very hard for me to give up that one-on-one time with people and lose that. Well, I'll tell you if I you know if I ever I suppose I better drop that one when the time comes if I have heads up on it. Uh, the hospice person I would want near me is you. That's for doggone sure. Dr. Oh, Wyatt, you. your ambition seems to be a, you know, a monumental one, even perhaps a, a, the impossible dream to put spirituality back into Western medicine. Uh, you know, I, I think about that and I think of how incredibly important it is. We have had so many physicians and healthcare specialists on this show talk about how incredibly important it is. But then I also think about the cold, hard reality. You know, who we're talking about, the, the entrenched, uh, the old systems, how the schooling works. Uh, you know, all you have to do is attend a CEU unit and and bring the subject up with a, a group of a couple of hundred professional health care providers, and you can see how quickly everything gets divided. Do you think that a doctor should speak to his patient about their spiritual needs? I guess what I would like to see is for the, a doctor to be open to that discussion when it seems to be appropriate because in my own practice I found so many times when the missing piece that had never been discussed before is 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 that aspect of a person's life like what All right, what is hold it right the there meaning? when we come back okay. I'm going to want to know how you're going to get this done thank okay. you Dr. <laughs> Wyatt for sharing with us today now if you would like to know more about Dr. Wyatt and her work again visit her website or go to provocativeenlightenment.com and click on those links If you're not in our chat room, get there. We have a film of our guest today, and you're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back after this station break. Confusion. Deception. Manipulation. Feeling a bit controlled. Lost. Learn how you can take back control of your life through proven techniques in Eldon Taylor's revised edition of Choices and Illusions. 
This New York Times bestseller is a guidebook to your journey to self-actualization, filled with practical, real-life solutions backed by scientific studies and guaranteed to awaken your inner genie. Get your copy today from all bookstores. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Just joined us. We're chatting with Dr. Karen Wyatt about her life, passions, teachings, and books. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. So please join me at Facebook.com, Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N. Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, of course, right, huh? All right, now we just played some of your second musical choice, Dr. Wyatt, Calling All Angels by the Waylon Jennings. And that one <laughs> threw me, the Waylon Jennings. I guess that Waylon Jennings. Anyway, what's the story about this one? Uh, I've, I love this song because it has a line in it that says, um, now I probably can't remember exactly how it goes, but it's something about, um, if you could, do you think you would trade it all? away meaning you know the suffering of life if you could if you could trade it and get rid of it would you but if you did you would miss the sweetness the sweetness of the light as it as it comes down and shines upon the earth and so i don't know that just moves me the idea that you know for all the pain that we suffer on earth there's so much sweetness in the midst of it all and um so much beauty that uh, that i would never want to trade it away Often, isn't it the pain that gives rise to, uh, you know, revealing beauty to us that we wouldn't otherwise know? Yes, absolutely. All right, before the break, we were talking about what I think of, for the moment, what I call Mission Impossible. (laughs) Putting spirituality back into Western medicine. And, and, And not that it's not impossible, just that what a monumental task you have given yourself you began to tell us that you think that it's often the one thing that's not talked about not spoken about between a physician and a patient that is critical to their care that's what i'm implying please pick it up there all right well 
what I what I found so many times in my own practice is that is that many times what was most important for the patient in their healing process was to have an understanding of the meaning, the meaning behind their illness, the meaning of their own life or where their life was headed. You know, that illness didn't come to them as just a random occurrence, but it, it was woven into the fabric of their life. And when they could I, I, I sit back and look at their life and understand why, why did this illness happen now, where did it come from, and what can I learn from it, that made all the difference in the patient's capacity to heal often and to, to heal more quickly, or at least when the illness couldn't be healed, to, um, to rise above it, to transcend it, and rise to a higher level of understanding and even be at peace with the illness if they couldn't find healing. And so um, many times it, it, it came about through our interaction or questions I would ask that, that the person would have an inspiration to, to look more deeply into the illness. So I see doctors, we're in this role as potential healers of patients, but if we don't even understand what healing really is or what that means in a person's life, we're missing huge opportunities. If, if, we, if we only write prescriptions for drugs and hand them out to patients, we're, we're throwing away this incredible opportunity to really interact with someone in a way that could make a difference. You know, one of the, uh, you remind me of so many conversations I've had uh, with the people, you know, with, with physicians, including yourself, that talk about anomalous events. And to me, you know, I mean, you have a patient, they're terminal with cancer, um, you, you tell them, I'm sorry, you haven't got much time to live. I'm thinking of a story Bernie Siegel uh, tells right now. Um, you know, uh, you, you just, you've got maybe a week, get your affairs in order, and the person says, you know, I'm too busy to die. <laughs> I've got things to do. And they just walk out of the office, and he encounters them a couple of years later, you know, and they are gardening, and, and he's, what did you do? And, and the person says, I didn't do anything. I told you I'm too busy to die. Or the stories, you know, I hear from other physicians where they simply give a, a drug that is a placebo. And the patient, because of their belief in the placebo, walks out of the hospital healed. And there are a number of those kinds of stories, some really pretty incredible ones. Yeah. Uh, don't you think that if a physician is going to be a total care physician, that it's incumbent upon them to even draw upon the strength or the power of placebo healing to talk about mind-body wellness? And, and if you do that, does that necessarily incorporate bringing spirituality into the matter? I think it's definitely, I think it's definitely a component of spirituality in my mind because um, it's part of treating the whole person. It's part of seeing, seeing the potential for that whole person, and uh, knowing that how the power of belief and what the patient believes in—that's the most incredible healing force there is. In, in addition to love, and to not utilize it in the in the medical setting, um, you know what a waste, and and what. What negligence in some ways to, to leave that out. And I mean, I realize patients on their own go out and, and 
deal with these aspects of medicine outside of the exam room and apart from the relationship with their doctor, but how much more powerful would it be if if their doctor had this much wisdom and knowledge and could help them utilize every tool that's available to them for potential healing? Incredibly. That's, that's the answer. It would be so much more incredibly powerful if they were to do that. Uh, Amen. I, I have great respect, great admiration for your ambition. And if I could ever help you in any way, I would love to. I, I think what you're trying to do there is uh, is very important. Dr. Wyatt, you, you've struggled with a lot of things in your life. And, um, and I think we've kind of got a picture on that. Did you, I mean, even medical school is not easy. <laughs> That's an understatement, I'm sure. Did you ever consider throwing in the towel? Just, you know, that's it. I've had enough. I'm not doing this anymore uh, at any point. Um, I would say, you know, I painted this picture. I've been incredibly goal-oriented <laughs> since I was 12 about being a doctor. But uh, at the end of college, um, after, you know, in college, I double majored in biology and chemistry. So I would have, you know, a good background in science for medical school and I had taken four years of Latin, so I know Latin for medical school, and then I didn't get accepted to medical school the first year I applied after college, and that completely threw me. I was I was devastated and and so upset. I just it pulled the rug out from under me. I had no idea why I wouldn't get in when here for all these years I had just devoted my life to this idea that I would be a doctor and I didn't get accepted to medical school. And so there was a whole year there. You know, I reapplied the next year, and I got into three schools the next year, three different medical schools. But for a year, I was in limbo, not understanding at all what what just happened to me. Why did this happen? And so for that year, I definitely questioned, like, have I, have I been completely wrong? Was I on the wrong path all this time, and I didn't know it? And it wasn't until later when I got in and I realized... I needed that year off. A lot of important things happened for me during that year. And, um, you know, later I saw how it all fit together. But definitely for that year, I I questioned if I had just been completely misguided all of those years before about my goal to be a doctor. And and I really thought maybe it wasn't going to happen. So, I mean, that was the summer you worked at McDonald's or something? I worked as a bartender. <laughs> as a bartender. Okay. Well, we all have those, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting when you talk to the banker and find out that he worked his way through school as a custodian. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, good. Was was there ever a point then when you said to yourself something like, I've made it? Or are you still on your journey? Oh, no. I'm definitely still still on my journey. And uh, I think when I um, when I wrote the book, What Really Matters, that book had been in me for 12 years at least before I started writing it. And that felt like a huge accomplishment when I finished it. Like, aha, I'm done. I, I, I did this. I did this big thing that I've always wanted to do. <laughs> but that only lasted about a day or two, and suddenly I realized, oh, yeah, I'm not done. <laughs> There's a lot more I have to do now. Well, you're a very successful doctor, you're a very successful writer, author, and you're a very successful speaker. So uh, is there anything that you'd do differently today if you had it to do over again? 
Um, I don't. I don't think I. You know, I don't ever think of it that way. That I would do it differently because I, uh, you know, I kind of see everything as having been perfect the way the way it has been. But definitely, I wish that I had. I wish that some of the there's been some healing that I've done within myself in the last few years. I wish I could have done that a long time ago, <laughs> because it's just made my life so much easier right now. And I, so I, I would have beat myself up a lot less <laughs> ten and twenty years ago if I had if I had just done this inner healing at a younger age in my life. And the other hand, you may not be as prepared to help as many people as you're helping today doing exactly that, avoiding <laughs> That's it. That's true. All right, Dr. Wyatt, do you think that our listening audience and anyone else out there at any point in their life can turn around their life and be successful like you at whatever they choose to do, or is it that we're just kind of gifted and, you know, we've got great parents or we've got, you know, we're in the river to, with a head start and a silver spoon? I mean, what is it that makes successful people like yourself successful and is it accessible by everyone? Um, I guess when I when I look at that, you know, for myself, I, I had an... I, I had an inner drive that was there for a long time from a very early age that constantly propelled me forward. But I, you know, my, my parents didn't have a lot of money. Neither one of my parents had ever been to college. So there wasn't really any support for me even going to college, let alone becoming a doctor. Like that was completely outside their realm of possibility in their minds. But it was within me, the drive to do it was with within me. So I know for sure that there's something about that drive that each one of us has, but I I view that as sort of the potential that we come to this planet with. Each one of us has our unique potential and that we need to have certain conditions around us met in order to meet that potential. But again, just because my potential was to become a doctor someday, um, Everyone has their own potential, and it's all very different. It, it plays out so differently in each one of our lives. So um, not everyone is, is meant to be, uh, you know, not everyone's meant to be a doctor or meant, right. to, um, meant to excel in certain areas. Everyone has their own potential that's very different. So I guess I think each person's potential could be unlocked at any time if the right conditions around them are met. But what I can't say is what what is that potential? Uh, you know, how, what exactly does that consist of for that person? Right. I think it's different right. for each one of us. But had you had the drive uh, that you had that fired you, uh, your ability to pursue and become a medical doctor, had that drive been, I want to be the first female race car, NASCAR driver? The drive would have carried you to success there. Uh, so if I understand you correctly, what you're really saying is it's, it's, it's the drive, it's the commitment, it's the passion, it's believing in yourself that, that makes that difference uh, once you decide you know, to develop your potential. Have I got that right? I think so. <laughs> I, think, I think that's how I see it. Because, and I, I think, I guess what I'm assuming here is that the drive matches your potential. You know that you you 
feel this inner drive for something that you really do have the potential for, like you, you have the right gift for it, you know, you, you know the, that you have been born with the right genetics or the right talents for that drive, that there should be a match there, I guess, between the drive and your, and your potential right. lining up. I think one of the real shames in our world is that there are so many people who have distanced themselves or become so self-alienated that um, the passion, uh, the ambition is unknown to them. Their uh, their potential, as you call it, is something that they would love to be passionate about, but they don't recognize. How do you suggest that they bring that out, that they, they discover their potential, Dr. Wyatt? One of the things that I guess that I that I think I'm not saying I have all the answers here, <laughs> but that that I think could be helpful is that people really need to spend time alone and they need to work on trying to be in the present moment. That most of the time we're either focused on the past, you know, ruminating about something that happened in the past, or we're projecting all our thoughts into the future. And that people really need to get to know themselves in the present moment and just to be here right now and really learn about themselves and who they are and and what did they come to this planet with? What what is within them? What what are their what are their thoughts about and what um, what stirs inside of them that that might be related to their passion for life? But so many people don't even take the time to sit and be still and quiet and go within themselves. Something that you teach. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> let's let's turn to your work. To your, you know, uh, I love your book, What Really Matters. You and I have, have discussed that book, and, and we'll chat about it some more. But what motivated you to write it? You say it was bottled up in you for some 12 years. Tell us about that. Well, as I was doing this hospice work and working with patients, and I, I mentioned that I, I got started in it because I had this terrible wound of grief that I needed to heal. And not only did I did I heal that grief, but I was able to observe patients and really the, the process of spiritual transformation that they were going through at the end of life. And I, I saw how powerful it was, this opportunity, as people were facing their own death, to grow in a, in a very short time, to suddenly open up and um, transcend and, and grow in the last weeks of life. So I began studying that. I began just paying attention to the stories and listening to what people had to tell me and observing what they were learning and then applying those lessons to my own life. And um, it was so powerful for me. And I realized in the middle of it that um, this this is something I need to share with other people. And, and one of the patients even said that to me. He said, I've only just now figured out what really matters in life, and I only have a week left <laughs> to live it. And he said, if I could, I would go tell everyone this. I would share this with everyone so that they would know it earlier. And in that moment, I knew that's what I'm here to do. I'm supposed to hear this story and take these lessons and share them with other people. So I knew right then that I needed to write it. I needed to write the stories and write about these spiritual lessons um, that, that I'd been learning. 
and I think one of the unfortunate things, and there are a couple, but the, one of the unfortunate things that we see in our Western society, and you and I have discussed this, we, I've discussed it before on the air, is that we tend to deny death. We tend to push it away. We don't want to think about it, you know, on uh, the Ivan Illich kind of uh, Tolstoy's story uh, where we're just, you know, we we know that it exists, but it's not for us. You know, we the psychological law of self-exemption. It'll get everybody else until it's right in our face. And and the second is that, you know, I, I think that by doing that, we deprive ourselves of really appreciating the beauty of life itself. So, you know, my question is this. Does death teach us about living? I absolutely believe that it does. And um, for me, it's that is when I, when I look at, at this life around me every day and realize that it's fragile and precious and fleeting, then I want to live to the fullest in every moment. I want to take advantage of every breath I have and utilize every moment that I have and make the most of it while I'm here. Okay, tell us this. What can your book, What Really Matters, how can that empower people today to break through their own limitations? Well, what I have found as, I, as I've worked with people who've read the book is that it, it's made a profound difference. For one thing, there's been a whole group of people who themselves are dealing with terminal illnesses like cancer who have found that by by reading the book and embracing the idea that life was never meant to be a forever, eternal life on this planet, and um, I'll, I'll accept what I have and what I've been given and make the most of it. I've, I found those patients have found a really rich life and existence, even though it may be limited in terms of time. And I've gotten letters from a number of people who said it, it totally transformed them and, and helped them uh, enjoy life even in the midst of, of dealing with a terminal illness and, and feel full in their lives. Can so that's been one group of people that's been really helped by it. And can, then... Can, Go okay. ahead. I'm sorry, Dr. Wyatt. Please. Oh, just also people who are struggling to grow spiritually, who are who maybe have rejected religion and therefore rejected all spiritual ideas and principles in general, and um, thrown all of that out because they didn't like religion, um, but now find there's something missing in their lives. Those people seem to uh, have been able to be awakened a little bit by the book to some spiritual principles and incorporate those into their lives. Do you believe that it's important that, you know, they do incorporate spiritual principles uh, at a time when they're passing? Well, it does seem to make a difference um, for for the people who are passing away and for their families when they've been able to address issues like love and forgiveness. Um, that that seems to be huge. They've been able to do a lot of healing with their families and then find peace in their last days of life so that they that as they are leaving this world they can um, they can be in a place of, of great peace and it seems to lessen their suffering. We've got some famous atheists like Christopher Hitchens or Sigmund Freud who essentially stated that religion is a sugar-coated neurotic crutch. And 
were quite comfortable, or so it would appear, passing as atheists. Have you ever personally experienced that? Um, uh, you mean uh, an atheist as a patient? Yes. Is it comfortable uh, with passing? Yes, I had um, a patient. Well, I'm gonna, okay, actually, I'll have to ask you. I thought that was a quick one. I'll ask you that one when we come back. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Ask you all about that one. All right. <laughs> okay. We hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your calls. If you have a question for Dr. Wyatt, do call in. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up in our next half hour. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, now expanded, updated, and revised. It will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. You can join in the conversation by calling 877 230-3062 and for our international callers you can join us by dialing your country code and 425-644-5620 you can also participate by entering the chat room at eldentaylor.com forward slash chat you can email Eldon from anywhere on the world by sending an email to eldon at eldentaylor.com now back to the show you 
just joined us. We're speaking with Dr. Karen Wyatt about her life, teachings, passions, her wonderful book. Uh, We'll take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have questions for our guest, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Ravinder, Andrea, and Jan are there to put your questions forward. Okay, Dr. Wyatt, we just uh, played, in fact, I played the entire song because I know this one is special to you. The sun is shining for you by Gia. Why is this music important to you? Well, first of all, it's by my daughter. It's written by my written and sung by my daughter. She she also produced the whole song and mixed it. She played all the instruments in it. Everything Say her name. Them. Is it Gia or Gia? Gia Gia is Gia. her stage name. Gia G I A. Gia. All right. Gia. Um, Go on. Yeah, and it's just a beautiful song. It's so uplifting to me and I love the I love the idea the sun is shining just for you. <laughs> you know, when you're having a bad day, to just remember, today the sun is still shining, and it's shining for me. And then there's a, a line in about, I'm holding on for a better day. So even if it's a, a rough day and a bad day, we can always hold on for a better day. And the sun will still be shining tomorrow. Why don't we do a blatant commercial here? Anyone that listened to that piece of music, where could they go get it? So let's see. <laughs> Make sure I say it right. It's giasings.com is her website. And the, and you can buy the song for just a dollar. You can download it. Or you can donate more money if you want. I'm going to make sure I have it right. Um, she's a very inspired singer-songwriter. And so I'm excited to celebrate her. Yes, it's giasings.com. G-I-A-S-I-N-G-S. Dot com. I bought the song, by the way, and, and oh, I left your daughter you. a note. I, you know, I love the music, and I've now got it on my my little iPod for my driving music. Uh, my son and I, my younger son and I, have got a a 1969 uh, Chevrolet Impala Super Sport, completely restored. You know, and with the the big engine, and you know, we. Uh, Everything works except the radio, so we have this little amplifier, and we plug it because it's the original radio. 
uh, we plug in our uh, our iPods and we have our driving music. And you can tell your daughter it is now on mine as part of my driving music. I'm very selective about what I listen to in that car when we're tuning. Oh, around. that's fantastic! All right, let's let's get back to what we were talking about. Uh, you have called the seven lessons in your book a map for spiritual growth. What do you mean by that? Well, what became clear to me is that our spiritual growth, it's its kind of an evolutionary process and that we grow, we develop in stages as spiritual beings too, just like, just like the stages of growth we go through in our human lifetime. And so it occurred to me as I was observing my patients that um, and these lessons that they were learning at the end of life that each one of them w- was at a different stage of their development spiritually. And um, so the seven lessons kind of represent seven different stages. But by by following through the lessons, you can kind of figure out where you are in your own spiritual development and what you need to work on in the future in order to keep to keep growing and to keep advancing in terms of spiritual understanding and higher consciousness. Could you give us an example of that, Dr. Wyatt? Well, um, I would say, for example, the, the majority of the patients that I worked with in hospice were at the level where forgiveness was the primary lesson they were working on to learn, and that's, that was the stumbling block from them, but, for them. But spiritually, forgiveness is where they had to apply most of their effort. But the stage beyond forgiveness is learning how to be in the present moment. We can't really be in the present moment if we haven't practiced forgiveness because otherwise too much of our energy and our thoughts will be tied up in all the things from the past that we have resentment about. And so the present moment is is the next stage up. And, and a lot of us, we hear about it all the time, be in the now and be in the present moment. And a lot of us are trying to achieve that. But if we haven't finished the stage of forgiveness yet, we'll have a difficult time getting to the present moment and actually being being able to be there and and remain there. In the, you and I share that in common. I totally believe that that is the first step that we take in spiritual growth and, and for that matter, in, in self-actualization. Uh, if, if to the precise extent that you fail to forgive someone, to that precise extent, I feel that you have tied yourself up. You've effectively disenfranchised a part of your being from from manifesting itself. So uh, we've got a question out of the chat room. Let me let me take a few questions here and then I'll come back to my own um, interest. Uh, Celestial B would like to know this. Her question is, uh, Dr. Karen, have you experienced very many patients having NDEs? Uh, you know, I haven't so much because I because my work has been in hospice, so they they were patients who were in the dying process, and so I haven't had the opportunity to work with very many people with near death experiences um, because all, I was gonna, all those patients in hospice had terminal illnesses, so they um, uh, they they weren't they weren't patients who were able to come back from that experience again and talk about it. Right, um, like so I'm fascinated. An operating table. Yeah. Yeah. 
How about OBEs, Dr. Wyatt? I, I've, I've heard it reported that it's not uncommon uh, for people as they begin to pass to have out-of-body experiences, to begin to see loved ones, uh, for that matter, for witnesses in the room to see flashes of light or other disturbances, electrical disturbances, um, that would suggest there is... Uh, what should I say? Maybe a fringe, uh, a twilight uh, area that is opening up between this plane and another plane. Yes, uh, yes, I did see quite a bit of that, and I, I had the perception. You know, the last two or three days, usually of life before a patient dies, they go into a state that we call active dying, and it's like a coma in a in a sense. I mean, the patient appears to be in a coma but they can actually hear what we're saying and respond. And, I mean, they can seem to come out of it if they choose to, to speak to us. And it's, you, it's been during that state while, and where in my mind they are in this kind of in-between realm between the two worlds that some patients, we, we hear them talking to a loved one or they will describe to us that they're seeing loved ones and, um, and experience that. And I even had a patient with end-stage Alzheimer's who hadn't been able to speak for about the last year of his life. He hadn't been capable of speech. When he was in that active dying state, he began speaking to his father. And his wife said, "He's this is that's his father. He's naming and talking to. And he was speaking totally normally, and he hadn't been able to speak for over a year. Um, wow. But it was that in, during that in-between time when they're in those realms in between in between this world and the next i I once had a a hospice nurse suggest to me that every physician should be required to do part of their internship in a hospice facility because if they did there would be no such thing as mechanistic uh, medicine no such thing as atheistic doctors do you think that's true well, I I do. I'm biased in that way because working in hospice made had such an impact on me. Um, and actually, this is one of my one of my plans for how I'm going to change medicine is that all the baby boomer doctors, you know, all the doctors my age who are baby boomers, <laughs> right. all of us are losing our parents now. It's our parents' generation that are dying now. So a lot of doctors who've never dealt with death and dying are going to be forced to, and their parents might be in hospice, and they will experience hospice as a family member, you know, accompanying a loved one through hospice. And so I think there's a big potential there for these doctors to have their minds open, even though it'll be late in their careers, but to see uh, to, to see things a little bit differently through the death of their own parents. I guess, you know, we we look at individuals and we think of them as being a, a microcosm of a larger macrocosm, you know, and we can expand that out. We, you know, we move to the cities and we move to the, to the state and to society at large and then different social organizations in different countries and so forth. Do you think that, that the basic lessons, let's, let's say these seven lessons that you have in your book, do you think that those seven lessons are important for all cultures or just for our culture? I I think I guess I haven't I haven't um thought about it in that regard, but I guess 
I think that they're fairly universal lessons, so I think that they could apply to other cultures as well. And I, I think some cultures probably do a much better job of of working on some of these lessons than we do, like uh, the idea of surrender and impermanence. I know that's in um, a big part of Buddhism, and uh, and so I, just, I think probably other cultures might even be more open than, um, about some of these lessons. Yeah, you know, I find it ironic that, as you say, a large part of Buddhism is uh, about mindfulness, for example, about impermanence and recognizing the impermanence. And, but Buddhism is basically atheistic. And you're coming from a very spiritual position. And, and now I hearken back to the question just prior to the break, uh, the Sigmund Freud, the Christopher Hitchens recently, who have this outlook that, uh, you know, life is uh, an expression of the natural order, and, and when it's done, it's done. There is no, you know, afterlife. And they seem to be able to transition taking that belief with them without difficulty. So my question before the break was, have you ever seen that in person? Oh, yes. Um I have not, because I, I did work with a woman who was an avowed atheist, but she was absolutely terrified when it came to the the time of her death, and she had a very difficult time. And, um, and I actually spent a lot of time with her when she was on her deathbed, because she was just so afraid. So I spent time just talking with her and sitting with her and holding her hands, because it, it was terrifying for her to go on that journey. Um, without any kind of framework whatsoever of any that there would be an afterlife or that there is a higher meaning or higher purpose to life she ha- she had none of those tools and none of it, none of it and so that's that was my experience my one experience with her was that she was very frightened yeah it it seems to me that um, and, and of course usually you'll hear mixed reports on whether these people really you know didn't have a last-minute, second thought about the entire matter or not. But I know from counseling myself that when someone has lost a, a, a loved one, that having this attitude, which sometimes it used to be the, the attitude of psychotherapy, having the attitude that uh, is sanitized and eliminates spirituality uh, doesn't offer a lot of hope for anyone. No, I, I agree completely. Okay, so <clears throat> what's the greatest obstacle, do you think, then, to spiritual growth, Dr. Wyatt? Well, in our society, I think it is our overemphasis on the ego. That I think that we've become a very egocentric society, and we kind of feed and support and empower the ego a lot in our society, and I think that it makes it very difficult for people to break away from that in order to focus on on more spiritual issues. And, and the ego, in some ways, is even taking over some of the language of spirituality as if, um, it seems to me, through some of our marketing and things, it seems as if the ego is even trying to, uh, trying to, to incorporate spirituality when that isn't really how it works 
You know, I I have my own pet peeves there, and you just opened up a can. I'm afraid I can't duck. So I'm going to have to ask you about this one, and then I'm going to let Ravinder take a couple of minutes to talk about a special package you have. But there, there is a mantra out there that essentially says, you know, you're entitled to everything. You deserve everything. You know, it, 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 it it's yours. You know, it, it is part of your spiritual birthright. Suffering is not part of what the world is made for. You know, you just you have the right to just manifest of manna from heaven. And 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 I, you know, I'm sorry, but I have some objections to that. Some is an understatement. I do think that um, just as that. Uh, master uh, butterfly has to struggle to get out of the cocoon that struggle itself makes us human your thoughts on this is this part of what you mean when you say we're pandering to people uh, by way of spirituality incorporating the ego yes very very much so and that was a big um, part of in the book, What Really Matters, when I wrote about suffering, that kind of the importance of suffering in life, and as you said, of our struggles, that is how we grow, and it is how we deepen ourselves and find our character and find deeper meaning in life through the things that we have to struggle with. And I, I, if you even look at nature, as, as you described, the, you know, the caterpillar has to go through a cocoon and the butterfly has to break its, break its way out. Um, looking at all of nature, nature is not without difficulties and suffering and struggles. And so I think that it's built into life and it's meant to be that way. And we're only fooling ourselves if we, if we try to tell ourselves that, that we can avoid all of that and just skip that. And go Amen. right to having treasures and rewards without doing the work that that's required. I so so agree, Ravinder. You and Doctor Wyatt's office have worked to put together an incredible opportunity here, and I want you to take a couple of minutes, no more, because that's all you've got, <laughs> uh, to tell everybody what that is. Um, you know, this is a fascinating course. You know where uh, Dr. Wyatt starts with this package is, you know, with a question, why is it so difficult to grow? What is it that sabotages your efforts to change and undermines your relationships where we're all very aware of, uh, you know, self-destructive patterns? But the idea here is that um, the answers lie in the memories of early childhood. Um, and she, her audio course is designed to help you uncover what those uh, memories are and to work beyond it. You know, she combines, you know, various fields. So she looks, you know, from her background in child development, neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, she brings all of uh, that in, you know. So the package comprises six audio recordings, six slide decks to accompany the recordings, and handouts for each section, and then she's got a whole bunch of um, additional freebies that come with it. But one of the additional freebies is a 30-minute consultation with Dr. Wyatt, so that would be a $100 value. And you can have this, you know, private consultation by phone or via Skype. So I think that's a great way, you know, I mean, a, a great 
number of us have those things in the past. We're very aware that the problems stem from something, but trying to uncover it or trying to find the solutions can be challenging. So anyway, this package is $199 and it's now available for only $99. And to get to it, just go to provocativeenlightenment.com and click on special offers. We have all the links there very easy for you. Dr. Wyatt, in 30 seconds, what would you like to leave with our audience? Well, um, I I just wanted to tie in this childhood wounds idea. It's really about getting to that point of forgiveness and letting go of resentments over the past is so crucial um, to help us bring all our energy into the present moment and find our creativity there. And that's how we're going to help the world and help the planet by by being in the present moment and having our creative energy available to us there. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I tell everybody out there, you're one of my favorite people, one of my favorite guests. I love what you teach. Uh, It has real meaning, and it changes the lives of many, many people. Tell our audience again your website, please. It's KarenWyattMD.com. So Karen, K-A-R-E-N-W-Y-A-T-T-M-D.com. KarenWyattMD.com. Be sure you check it out. Thank you for joining us. I'm sorry, but we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guests and, of course, all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show. And will join us again next week, same time and same place. And tell your friends. Let's have them join us all as well. And remember, if you have any comments on our show, do please write me. Let me have them. I love to air them. I love your discussions. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.